from Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks. Highlights of important interviews from our weekday discussion on race and economics and education. Today on the program, they give you a little bit and then they say, well, look, we're doing something. But the something is never enough. Orlando Dixon on public land for public use. What we really need to see tracts of land that are given back to the, the residents and so they can, you know, make it green spaces, they can farm on that, they can plant flowers. Also ahead, a look at gangs and mentorship alternatives in the city of Buffalo. We talk about black representation on stage and a look at the only African-American veterans monument in the United States on Buffalo's waterfront. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for being with us. Up first, youth and gangs and mentorship. Here's Jay Moran with Cedric Holloway. We have a lot of ways of introducing Mr. Holloway this morning because he has a, a wide array of experience. But I guess we're going to just to put it uh, right off the bat on the Omega Mentoring Programming here in the city of Buffalo. First, uh, Cedric, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, a pleasure, and uh, to, to dip into some of your experience, but let's just talk about the mentoring program right off the bat here. Uh, this is a program for what, teenagers, inner city teenagers? That is correct, inner city teenagers, as well as uh, folks that are out of the city as well. We've had a couple of Lancaster individuals as well, so. And let's t go through what it means to be mentored through the Omega Mentoring Program. Oh, indeed. Uh, so the Omega Mentoring Program, it's a hands-on mentoring program. And it's a free program. It's not uh, funded by a state, county, or, or federal agency. It's a bunch of uh, devoted volunteers who commit to... Uh, bringing up the youth, uh, finding a better way and uh, offering different opportunities for them. What kind of issues do some of these kids have then when they come to you? A lot of these kids are, are street kids. A lot of these kids have seen a lot of things. Uh, our, our focus is to basically show them these different opportunities. Uh, it seems like they, 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 they appear to be in a fishbowl, and a lot of them never escape that surroundings that they have, their, their neighborhood. And we take them further. Uh, we get them to see things that they've never seen before. We've uh, partnered with the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. Uh, we've partnered with Shays Buffalo. We do college tours. We take them to different events, snow tubing and whitewater rafting, things of that nature. And a lot of times this is the very first time for those folks, our kids, to experience those type of things. That's got to be a nice opportunity. At the same time, if I remember how I was when I was a teenager, and I wasn't by any means an, an inner city kid who was dealing with some of these issues that kids in the city deal with, mm -hmm. But I didn't want to talk to authority. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I wanted to stand up. I was 16 years old. Right. I'd sit there with my arms crossed and with just a frown on my face. Right. I, I would expect you to deal with kids like that a little bit. What oh, do you do? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and it's, it's my desire to, to break down those barriers between the kids and adults, especially me being... Uh, uh, an officer who I was uh, for 33 years, I mean, they had to see me in a different light. And I know that there's a bad rap given on officers. And I thought that I was the spokesperson for the police department in relations to kids in the inner city. 
So I had to develop this, this, this wonderful rapport with them, which I still have. Uh, and they see me as just a normal person who was an officer. But at the same time, though, I would think that there's a, a general distrust of authority. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How do you bridge that? Um, being genuine. Uh, they see me as a genuine person who is absolutely in their corner. Um, I had an issue with a young woman yesterday, and I said, listen, I have got your back. Because she had some issues in school, quite naturally. There was a fight in school, and mm -hmm. we were addressing her on those issues. Uh, and we had to explain to her that there's a different way of handling things. So I said, you had to have faith in me. I said, I've got your back. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. But you have to trust me. And trust when I say duck, I do mean duck instead of sitting there debating with me. I said, "There's, there, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. I'm not going to tell you any kind of bull BS. I want you to listen to me, know that I've got your back. And that works. It, they, they do realize that they can trust in me and as well as the other adults in the program. And it, it works out wonderfully, you know. When I tell them the duck, the, the duck, as opposed to debating, why should I duck? What are you telling me to duck for? Things of that nature. But it, it works. And, and I love the relationship that we have. You know, uh, it'd be probably helpful to talk about maybe some of the unfortunate ends for some mm -hmm. of these kids, because that's a reality. Right. But let's talk about possibilities mm -hmm. with these kids. You've been doing this for a while now. Take us through some of your success stories. Oh, I've got several success stories. I get a call from one of my success stories. She works in Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C. She's a Secret Service agent. And she grew up in the hood. Um, when that Capitol thing happened, I got a call saying, there's something going to happen. There's, these people are here. It's going to happen. Just pay attention to the news. Wow. And sure enough, the whole Capitol insurrection happened. It was it was it was bizarre, but you know I and I did attend her graduation. She called. I went down to Maryland for her graduation. Absolutely proud. Um, we've got firemen. We've got police officers. We've got teachers. We've got several individuals who are out here in the community doing positive things from the program, and they all attribute it to being in the program, which I'm. That makes me proud. And and this is a non-paid positions and that accomplishments that my kids have that's my payment and that's what I strive for um, I'm curious about the type of experience let's say a kid who comes through your mentoring program brings to becoming a teacher mm -hmm. or brings to becoming a police officer mm -hmm. can you try to relate that again kids who have seen things that a lot of us have never seen. We only imagine it. Maybe we right. see something like it on TV that's not real. Mm -hmm. um, but these kids have, have lived through this, and now they're teachers and they're, they're police officers. Is there a way to kind of describe what their experience brings to those jobs? Well, so they bring their own personal experience, like uh, things that they've gone through as children, and they'll be, they're able to use it and turn it and use it to your advantage because uh, being able to relate to folks is, is a big part of being able to uh, have some sort of a relationship. So if, I, if we can relate, we're good. We're, we're going we're gonna to be okay. And I think that's what they bring to 
their jobs and such, being able to relate. A, a special quality to have in jobs mm -hmm. like that, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, some kids, it doesn't turn out quite as well. And that's that's got to be... A real kick in the gut for you and your fellow mentors. Um, right. Can talk again, as general as you'd like, about you know maybe some of those unfortunate circumstances because right. this this brings to to height the the real the real challenge here is doesn't it? Yeah, indeed it does. And as I mentioned, we try to give these kids opportunities to be able to ex experience something better try to break free from their fishbowl that they're in in their neighborhoods. And a lot of folks are bound to their neighborhoods because of where they live. We had a young man, his name was Eddie Battle. He was into the gang thing. Uh, uh, he was shot and killed because of his relationship with the gangs. Um, he, had came, he had come to me and told me that he wanted to be out of, out of that street mm. business, but he was so sucked in because of his friends, because of where he lived. So, unfortunately, he was, he was wrapped up in it because of the association. He wasn't a gun person, but he was associated with someone who had street murder beef with another gang, another area. And we lost him. And he was maybe 16, 17. And that spurred a domino effect uh, for, like, revenge. Like, this gang thing just it, it got really, really bad because of what happened with Eddie Battle. And a lot of folks are tattooing his name, Eddie Battle, young Eddie Boy. They called him Eddie Boy on their chest as, the, as a catalyst for revenge for others. And it just was, you get me, I get you, you get me, I get you. You know, and unfortunately, uh, they carry that on generational to generation. And some folks don't even know why they're having this beef. Right. But they know they have beef. And and they carry it on. And it's they're really senseless. Yeah, I'm sorry for, for your loss there, Thank of course. Um, our guest this morning is Cedric Holl uh, Holloway. Uh, we've got a lot of things to talk about with uh, Mr. Holloway this morning. His uh, Omega Mentor mentoring program dealing with kids like we just talked about eddie battle uh, not necessarily a success story but one that uh, does stand out um you also of course spent 33 years on the buffalo police force as well how can you define or give us an indication of the gang situation in the city of buffalo it's something that spikes up in the news like mm -hmm. you said once in a while but at the same time i think it stays pretty much below uh below the surface from the public attention. Mm -hmm. What do we need to know? What should we know? What's going on? Well, there's there's such a large contingency of gangs in the city of Buffalo. Large, small, old beef, new beef. There's children of gangs, if you will. Like, one gang will start like uh, maybe 10 years ago, and then from there, there'll be a, a, a gang that's offset from there. I mean, it's Gang activity, a lot of the, the, the beefs in school are related to gang activity. You know, it's, it's such a big problem here. And one thing with regards to them is that if you're not a part of a gang, then you, you lie unprotected. Mm. And people will say, where are you from? You know, that's, that's the big thing. And you got to answer correctly. If you're somewhere else, then, and that 
incorrect answer, it means trouble, you know. And if you're not from anywhere, that's also a problem because you're, you're just you're standing there unsponsored, if you will. And and it's it's a big problem. And there's there's going to always be those kind of issues in school and such because of gangs because they they start really really young as well. It's got to make it hard for the people in the Buffalo Public School District. It's interesting, actually, before we went on the air, uh, you're talking about uh, you, you have a, a fairly advanced martial arts degree, um, for sure, that has taken you, uh, I think, worldwide, actually, in, in terms of competition and teaching. But um, at the same time, I know you tried to, you've been trying to help out some of the security personnel right. at Buffalo schools in that regard, um, which is obviously very commendable. But if that part of the school reality can't be can't be changed it sounds like i mean buffalo public schools have enough of an uphill uphill battle as it is and it sounds like this is something that's got to be it's got to be curtailed significantly yeah we've got to to offer these kids uh something else something in addition to their education at school this this gang thing being protected being associated uh the beefs that exist it's it's crazy i had a couple kids from mckinley um who are in some issues because of i mean this this gang thing is just it's just a virus that's running rampant in the schools as well and grade school as well like seventh and eighth graders are associated with gang activity as well um and then they they grow and they 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 have this association it seems like forever and then new folks come along and get indoctrinated into the gang as well and it just keeps going it just keeps over and over again it just reinvents itself as well you were a city kid, grew up uh, just off Broadway. Yep. Um, gangs weren't around then, not as prevalent. What was uh, what so was it like? When I was uh, a kid, we had there were gangs back then, like the Mad Dogs and the Platlogs and uh, a la Turks, things of that nature, old school gangs. Um, so, but they weren't as bad as as these gangs. I mean, this this murder beef that goes on now, it's 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 it seems greater than when I was growing up. And um, so now where my in where I grew up in my neighborhood, it's thirty one Broadway uh, down the way, um, and a couple other acronyms which they've spun off from. But gangs are still around, even 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 today for, compared to when <laughs> what I've experienced as a kid. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you went to Howard University. That's where you got, I think, into the Omega um, Sci-Fi. Right, that's fraternity. where I was first, uh, first uh, exposed to it, yes. And it's interesting because that uh, that dated back to Howard University in the early 20th century, I believe. It was right. the first fraternity on a historically uh, black college campus, uh, for sure. What about, I'm interested because it sounds like you're very connected to uh, to members of that fraternity, and right. you probably hear about what life is like in other other cities. Absolutely. So the fraternity now, oddly enough, it's uh, gone in a direction of uh, mentoring as well. Uh, the Grand Bassus, who's a grand uh, president, wants every chapter to have a mentoring program associated with their chapter. 
And we've we've been doing it since 1999, so we're we're far ahead of the game, and we absolutely know the effect of mentoring to own a kid. It, it absolutely works. We're talking with uh, Cedric Holloway uh, today on Buffalo. What's next? Uh, getting into a lot of different things, including his uh, Omega mentoring program in the city of Buffalo. Uh, this conversation always seems to kind of go back to May 14th. You have uh, a, quite a, the personal story about May 14th of this year. You were at Johnny B. Wiley That's correct. with your kids at that That's time. That's correct. We were there with uh, Shays Buffalo, who comes to teach uh, some drama, acting lessons, and things of that nature for, to the kids. So we were there uh, with the Shays Buffalo, and um, the 514 thing happened while we were there. And we're, of course, we heard the sirens and such, and as I mentioned, a lot of the adults who are who were in the program are adults. One was a, one is a fireman, and he knew that we were down the street, and he sends me a text saying, "Keep the kids inside." He says, "I see three bodies in the parking mm. lot," mm. and he says, "I'm not totally certain about the bad guy whether he's caught or not." So we quite naturally locked the door. We held the kids in until I got word from them, from folks that I knew that were down the street there, that the uh, assailant was in custody. Um, we basically held the kids there. I held the kids there because a lot of them, kids were, I was a ride home. So I stayed there for, for a while. Um, it was a desire of the the responders to have a notification area so that they can notify the families of the deceased and seeing that my facility had kids in it that they couldn't use it but across the street was Mikowski so I had an executive from the Board of Ed with us and we decided that uh, Mikowski was going to be a great uh, spot for a notification center um, I called the engineers, who I still had the phone number to because of this being, me being the SWAT commander, needing everyone's phone number to be able to access stuff, right? So right. I called, couldn't get them on the phone, and I, in my career, I haven't found a building that I could not get into, <laughs> <laughs> be it locked or otherwise. So we made our way into the school with the permission of the Board of Education, and that's how McCalsey became um, the notification center. What about for your kids? Um, what was their response? What, what, have, what are they saying about it? If you don't mind sharing what they may have said about this particular incident. So they, they thought it to be crazy but they weren't totally shocked they weren't traumatized it seems because they've experienced so much in their day-to-day -day lives in their, in, their, in their own neighborhoods it was it was something to experience their experience of the shooting down the street and I thought I, I would think that they would be, you know, a bit shocked or traumatized, but it, it, it wasn't the case because they, wow. they, they experienced it in their everyday lives. One, one of the individuals, one of the kids I was with lost her brother violently in front of her. So it wasn't a big shock to them. Right. Is it, is it, I guess it's not even a matter of does that desensitize, I would call it desensitization, right? Right. Uh, um, I, I guess it's not even worried. 
we're at the point where we can even worry about what that means because mm -hmm. it's just the reality, right? right? I mean, it's just, there's just enough of it around that everybody's seeing. It's not necessarily even stuff that you're seeing online right. uh, or anything like that. It's, it's real for these kids. It is real, absolutely. They experience it. And when they usually give, like, uh, talks to folks and such, like, I've given a couple of talks to schools and such, and I say, well, how many of you have experienced uh, uh, a loss, a homicide in your family or what, ha or, or, or immediate family, close family members? And the majority of the crew was raising their hands because they've experienced it, like, school-wise or, or otherwise. It's, it's, it's just something else. But it's real. Cedric Holloway with Jay Moran. Up next, my chat with Madai criminal justice professor Orlando Dixon. He works with the Partnership for the Public Good on a range of issues. Public land for public use. It sounds like a simple concept, but is that happening here in the city of Buffalo? Um, to an extent, I think it's 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 more of a, a half measure approach, and this is common what what you see in. Most political areas, they give you a little bit and then they say, well, look, we're doing something, but the something is never enough. Um, what we really need to see is we need to see, you know, tracts of land that are given to um, back to the, the residents. And so they can, you know, make it green spaces. They can farm on that. They can, you know, plant, you know, um, flowers, whatever. Right. We need more green spaces in the city of Buffalo. Right. Um, but we also need. Um, tracts of land that are just left alone that we, we're not giving to developers and saying, hey, build something on this, right? Um, sometimes you just need green space that's not used for anything. Um, you know, for what is it called? Uh, carbon uh, reduction. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think a lot of a lot of what happens with, with public land is, is we pe people look at public land and they see money um, but they don't see health they don't see, you know, uh, energy conservation. They don't see you reducing um, smog. They don't see like those things. Most of the time people look at land and say, oh, look, a free space where we can build something and make money. But we need to change our mindset to um, one where we look at these spaces and say, well, can we do something to help the city in another way? What would you do with the Kensington Expressway? Uh, there's been talk, there's plans to, to turn it into something, uh, something that, that it's currently not, um, uh, connecting these neighborhoods that have been, uh, bisected for years and years and years. Um, say you had the influence, what would you do? I would get rid of it. Honestly, I think that's the only way that you can, can completely negate the history of dissecting, you know, black communities, um, you got to completely get rid of the highway. Um, now, I say that from a perspective of like, the reality of making that happen is, is of course, extremely difficult. And then you're going to have people complaining about traffic, etc. Right. Um, so I guess the, the second state is reconnecting those communities. Um, you know, they have the over the expressway um, you know, uh, walkers where you can walk, you know, across, mm -hmm. right? We need more of those. Um, we need more ways to connect these two areas that have been split. Um, not only that, you need to reinvest in those areas that you split. Absolutely. You don't necessarily have to change the, the road, or, um, change the highway. You can just invest in those communities and pay back what you destroyed. 
And it's and it's, you know, also an apology would be nice. <laughs> um, hey, we acknowledge that we, you know, separated these communities and we destroyed a hundred years worth of progress. Maybe we should apologize for that. Maybe we should put it on the table and just say, you know, here's some truth and reconciliation about the about the issue. Now, we. Uh, being WBFO, we recently obtained documents related to Buffalo and Erie County Land Trust grabbing up property from Jefferson Avenue owners and others uh, with a super bid prior to the October 6th auction, uh, essentially cutting a line to get uh, to bid. Um, and we know land trust works to keep property out of the hands of developers. Uh, but what is your what's your take on this news? Big deal, little deal, no deal? Uh, it's a big deal. Um, assuming that it's true, of course, I don't know any other details. I just, I think it's believable though. And the, the problem is that it's believable, right? Like it, there's, it's not a stretch of the imagination to think that something like this is happening in Buffalo. Um, it's the way that Buffalo treats developers. We generally, as a city, give developers all the benefit of the doubt. Then we give them the benefit of the benefit, right? Um, and so it's always a constant well, what are what do the developers want? And then we'll check with everyone else kind of city. And I think that's the problem. We shouldn't be able to believe this. This should be something that as soon as somebody talks about it, we're like, no, 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 the city of Buffalo wouldn't do that. But at the city of Buffalo needs to ask themselves, why do people believe this? Why is this something mm-hmm. that can even be brought up? Well, because, you know, people tend to believe this type of thing about a city who's done it before. So are you saying... Developers have a little too much power in this city. They, a little too much. Di- dictate things over here. A lot of too much. Um, there's there, Developers are in a situation in this city where if they talk to the right people and they promise the right things, they can essentially get whatever they want. And I, and I, and I, don't, and I don't think that's a stretch of the imagination for anybody who's, who's uh, been in the game with, with politics uh, in this city. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, multiple nonprofits have suggested that all you have to do is just open the auctions up to locals first. Don't allow outside, you know, people who don't care about the city to come in, snap up land, and then hold it and become slumlords, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's it's a very simple thing, right? We can allow the auctions to go to locals first and then open it up to developers. We could give public land for public benefit, right? We could force um, developers when they be, create these huge monstrosities to, to do some integrated living, right? Some, it mix in some, some affordable housing with that, the luxury of housing, right? It's, it's very simple, and, and that's, the, that's the thing. We have all the solutions. It's just a matter of political will. Is luxury housing sustainable in Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's, it's actually very odd to me that we have luxury housing at all. I mean, I understand that there's people who have more than others, of course, and they want to live at a higher standard than others, but they can go buy a house. Mm-hmm. We don't need that in the city. We don't need, we don't need a, 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 a sky-rise building overlooking the city when we have the entire east side struggling, right? It, it's, it's, it's very dystopian, or dystopian, I guess, to, to see like this luxury apartment building coming up over here and then the east side of Buffalo can't even get their sidewalks paved, right? Mm-hmm. They have open lots that uh, where dilapidating houses. There's, there's just massive disinvestment in one part of the city. So how, how dare you build luxury apartments when people on one part of the, in one part of the city are struggling like that? That's Orlando Dixon. 
This is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks, a chance to hear more from WBFO's talks on our shared humanity and the issues that can't be ignored in light of the shootings at the Tops Market on May 14th. On screens and stages across the nation, there has been a debate going on about color and casting black actors. Bridget Jaipal Valenza got into that with Gianna Reed and Marcus J. Page from the cast of Once Upon This Island at Shea's 710 Theater last month. As you mentioned earlier, Once on This Island is, is a loose retelling of the Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if... You've spent any time on social media. I know you're going to ring it up. (laughs) (laughs) I was just talking to um, performing arts about this. Yes. um, Any time at all on social media in the last couple of weeks. And Mm -hmm. even before then, uh, there has been much... To be said, I won't even say it's discussion because it's I don't know that there's been yeah. discussion. It's not a discussion. Right. Um, much has been said about the casting of The Little Mermaid in Disney's live action being a young woman of color. Beautiful, I um, It's not the first time, obviously, that this backlash has popped up. Uh, it popped up. Uh, you know, most recently also in the Amazon's Lord of the Rings yes. uh, series where some of the the characters are people of color. Um, two questions then for you. So, I mean, first, we're talking A, about a mermaid, <laughs> and B, we're talking about people who live in Middle Earth. Not that there's anything wrong with Middle Earth or under the sea. <laughs> However, these are fictional characters. (laughs) I mean, we can imagine a mermaid, but yet we can't imagine that she's black. Mm -hmm. We can imagine an elf, but yet cannot fathom that they may be a person of color. What do you what do you say to that? It makes people feel like um well, I can't speak for all the people, but, you know, it makes me feel like we don't have a, a space to dream or to, to be or to, to see ourselves in any sort of other world or other space mm-hmm. beyond what we see in reality. And it's crazy to think that there's such an uproar over <laughs> a fictional character, but it's also really poignant and pivotal that they have that we see ourselves in in these spaces of in these imaginary spaces because that's where we connect with spirit and that's also where our creativity blossoms from right. and that's also how we connect with each other is through these imaginative as if spaces and that's that's how we create the world that we live in today right like are children not allowed to dream are are we not allowed to imagine you know these different worlds like we can it's okay for us to see ourselves in these universes and in these fairy tales it's okay because you know we need that we need to like she said we need to be able to see ourselves beyond the reality that's here and other people have been afforded that opportunity for the past few centuries (laughs) (laughs) and so you know if we happen to get one or two like what (laughs) why why is this an argument why is this a a quote-unquote debate why is this up for a discussion that it can be 
a wrong thing? What is what well, is wrong about it? That's why it's so important it? for us to see ourselves, and that's why it's so important for us to do things like this show, so mm-hmm. that when we're on that stage, little girls, little boys can oh, see themselves. My goodness. You know, like, I, I won't spoil how this show ends, but the idea of this story, the last song we sing is why we tell the story. Mm-hmm. We tell this story so that a little girl out in the audience can theoretically come on stage and she can tell that story so that another little girl can see that and come on stage and tell that story and a little boy can come on and, you know, so these things can reverberate. That's why it's important for us to see ourselves. How difficult is it for an actor of color to break into theater? Mm-hmm. I mean, and and I guess I'm I'm... Speaking specifically, really, about stage arts, mm-hmm. not necessarily movies, because while we would strive for 100% representation, um, there is a sense in, in Hollywood for, for movies that, you know, you might have actors of color. That That's not a weird, odd thing. But right. people don't necessarily see the stage version of Macbeth having... Right. Yeah, I would like to say there's not a lot of parts written for us. I mean, we were just having a conversation yesterday with another cast member, but... That's... I think that's quite a bit of a question. There's a lot that goes into that. But um, I think what it really comes down to is it's a systemic issue Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's a gatekeeping issue. I think there's a, a lot of people, one who are hiring and casting for these things that only see black actors being in roles that are specifically made for black people. Um, you know, how many times have you seen Rent and the two black people in the show are Collins and and, mm-hmm. and um, Benny, I believe his name is? Um, but yeah, so how many times do you see Rent and it's the two black actors are those two gentlemen? And why have we not seen a, a black Mark or a black Roger or a black Mimi? Well, we've seen black Mimi, excuse me. But um, but yeah, so, how, so I think a lot of times we see these people who, people who are casting that just think black role, black person. Um, but also I think there's a lot of, gatekeeping when it comes to opportunity and and a lot of times people come out of a conservatory system they come out of big training schools and there's a lot of inequality in the education system where a black student may not be able to go to these big theater schools and get that bfa or get that that um that master's degree in theater that opens a gate for them to go out into the world and really get these audition opportunities so i think we have to talk about how gatekeeping is preventing an opportunity is preventing people from even getting in the space being even being in the room like you're not even allowed to get into that room unless you've gone through a a system that really has been created to help develop non people of color and those systems perpetuate the idea that there can't be multiple black experiences like it makes it seem like this is the black experience and this is only one thing but the way I exist, it may not be the same as the way Marcus exists or the, the same as you exist. Right. We, we, it devalues our experience as a whole. Right. And we walk into a room and you see our color before you see us as the actor, which is not necessarily great because you, if I were to go in for, you know, anything goes, you're not going to look at me and say, oh, he's going to be a great actor, he, a great dancer or whatever. You're going to say, oh, he's black. And usually Billy and anything goes is not black. So... Mm-hmm. Am I going to cast this guy? Probably not. You know what I mean? And so it's just we have a lot of barriers that we have to get through from the onset, you know, mm-hmm. even before we get in the room. So, yeah, it's it's 
It's difficult. <laughs> Do you think the sense of not seeing people of color in terms of having, um, you know, a space in Middle Earth or under the sea uh, really is f- sort of the start of that gatekeeping. If if we don't or cannot see ourselves in ourselves in that space, being that character, you know, being an elf or a mermaid, um, then certainly we wouldn't push for something like that. Yeah. I mean, you see a lot of times, you, I, I see a lot of auditions come through and I may or may not submit for just knowing that, you know, I, uh. I may not fit what they're looking for just because I'm black. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I might be able to move or dance or, or I might be a tenor and they're looking for a tenor. But if I see that it's a certain role, you know, sometimes you might have trepidation even submitting yourself for that because you haven't seen that before. Um, so th- that, I think that, again, that's why it's important for us to see ourselves on stage, see ourselves on screen, um, because we need to know that it is possible for you to be a mermaid. It's possible <laughs> to be an elf. You can be it's whatever totally you want to be. Whatever you want to you can, want. Like you can, as an actor, you can do something other than, you know, ragtime. You know, it's possible. I know. It, it's a beautiful show. Love ragtime. But like, you know, it, it is possible to do something other than that. Well, certainly because you have the title of actor. Indeed. That part. <laughs> We're going to act as if. Um, what would your younger self say to you now? Your younger self has gone and seen this show and they are ecstatic. And what would your younger self say to you? Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. I feel I'm like gonna I'm going to make gonna you cry. cry. I think oh, I'm no. going to cry. I'm talking to actors. We're emotional. Like, Stop wait that. a second. Like, the amount of t- different parts that I cry on stage would be baffling me. Oh, hey. Um, <laughs> you go. You go. I need to think. <laughs> my younger self speaking to me, I'm. it's weird I'm seeing him. Um, oh, come on. Look at him. I, uh, I think he would say, wow, I'm... I'm I'm proud that you never stopped. I'm proud that you never stopped because, you know, I grew up in Compton, California. Mm. I have no idea. I had no idea what I was doing when I decided to go into stage and and music and all that. And there are many a time when I could have just been like, I'm just going to do something else. Uh, You know, after college, I actually went into real estate for a while and I was doing that and and that was fine, but it wasn't fulfilling me. And... Mm -hmm. And I think my younger self would have would look at me now and say, "Good on you for not stopping, because you're here." So, mm-hmm. your younger self has a seat at this table. Come on, yeah. at yeah. whatever table you want to sit at. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely not avoiding you. <laughs> and didn't forget about you. you. Didn't forget about no, I did not. About me. Same question. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was just think this is so funny because uh, my mom came to see the show this past Sunday and she's she lives in Ohio so she's driving her and my two um, siblings back to Ohio this morning and she dropped me off and she's just like Shauna 
about to have a cry moment you know she's like Jana you are doing the thing and I know you're you're saying what would my child self say but I'm also thinking about the those moments when we say like you are your ancestors dreams like that's literally what my mom was saying but it, it's like I am my parents dreams and I think and I believe in my experience um growing up I am honored and privileged to say that I was never given the brown girl narrative that the you are not enough mm -hmm. you know I was always filled with with love and compassion and of you can do this and I think I would say to my younger self that you're doing the things Jana you're doing all of the things that you want to do and you will continue to do the things that you desire and you dream of and that you can keep dreaming and God will continue to supersede it. So um, to all the little girls out there, you just keep dreaming and do the thing. Yeah. It, that was actually my next question, what you would tell uh, young actors and actresses uh, who may be struggling mm -hmm. to find their way in performing arts, to find a path for themselves in something that they're good at, something that fulfills them, mm -hmm. um, that, that really makes them complete. What, yeah. what do you tell them? One of the things is you need to find your people. In that respect, I mean, find the people doing the things that you see yourself doing or the things that you're interested in doing. Inquire, talk to them about it. Um, also, even if you can't f find the person to actually talk about, because, you know, we're, we live in the AI world, mm. find your people online, Absolutely. look up the interviews, yeah. look up what they're doing, what their path was. And I'm not saying look up to, to do exactly what their path was, but to just be inspired and to see the work that they put in to to where they are right now. Yeah. Also, the next thing I would say is to trust yourself. Trust your journey and, and know what you want so that you can move forward with what you want. Because if you don't if you don't know what you want, you will be all over the place. I also think that you have to really be tenacious in believing in yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I, that's something that I learned, especially during the pandemic when everything was shut down and I, and I lost so many jobs. And I thought, this is not this is not going to happen. I thought everything was lined up for me and it all fell through. But I think the biggest lesson that I learned was you have to be your own biggest fan. Yeah. You have to be tenacious and you have to just really be vulnerable and put yourself out there and try to walk into the rooms that you feel like you don't belong in. And be kind to yourself too. That's another thing. We speak a lot on this show about how arts can be healing. Mm -hmm. uh, Buffalo has been through a great deal of tragedy in the last few months. Um, what role does theater play in recovery from tragedy? I think theater allows us the opportunity to reflect. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times seeing something on stage allows you that opportunity. Um, you know, if someone were to, if you try to give yourself advice on a situation, it may not resonate with you, obviously, but then if someone else were to tell you that same advice, you think, 
oh, maybe you're right. And I think it's a similar idea with theater. Um, if you can see something on stage that you relate to and there's a message there, it might permeate you in a different way. Um, yeah. I think especially with this show, handling grief and handling tragedy, I think the way we show that in our, in our show, I think is done in a way that is quite beautiful and shows that this moment doesn't have to always be sad. This moment doesn't have to be traumatic and ongoing. It can be a moment of, of rebirth and of healing. And that's something that personally I took into mm -hmm. to myself with, with our, uh, with our show. Cause I, my, I lost my mother last year unexpectedly. And so, thank you. And, and so watching this show and watching one of the scenes in particular that I won't go into, you have to see it, but, but watching <laughs> one of these scenes and how we handle it, yeah. for me, there was a moment during the rehearsal process where I had to step out oh, yeah. and just have a moment with myself. But it really was therapeutic for me because I, I realized that I didn't have to wallow in that and that there is some sort of celebration that can happen in this time of grief and trauma. And so I think when you see it, it's, it's a bit easier to process and then take it in for yourself. So, I believe that the, the most powerful thing that the theater does and that we do with the show is, is that it opens up these discussions and, and these conversations through the spirit first, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's music, it's song, it's story. And then it unlocks something that sometimes you don't know why. Right. I, I, a lot of times we, we leave the show and the people are bawling. They're, they are bawling. Yes. I, I gave um, a woman a hug the other night and it was just tears. And then, oh, and then another, another. <laughs> and, and it's just that moment of release that, is, that I'm so grateful to, to help provide and to, and to give and to have with. The, the audience that we I know for a fact we are doing something powerful with this show and with the people that enter into the space who see the story who hear the story who feel the story mm -hmm. because art and spirit are will always be intertwined actors Jean Reed and Marcus J. Page we close today with Dave Debo and Warren Galloway and a look at the nation's only African-American veterans monument on Buffalo's waterfront. Describe the monument. If I wasn't there and didn't see it or haven't come across pictures, what does it look like? The monument looks like one when you come up, you'll see 12 uh, black columns. Each column represents a one of the 12 outstanding wars that this country has been in since its exception from the Revolutionary War all the way up to the global uh, terrorism, war on terrorism. Uh, they did the artistic designer, uh, Mr. Jonathan Casey, he designed this uh, monument, and to him, he made these columns to represent candles. And the reason why he did that, I guess, from what it says, is that during wartime, many families put candles in the windows and lit them every night until their family member came home. And even our uh, 12 black columns at night, their lights come on at the top that uh, 
that light all, all night long representing candles. Then you will also, as you walk through there, you will see uh, pavers. Pavers made of brick with looks like dog tags inside. Each of the dog tags are for sale and we uh, roughly sold over 550 pavers that have names of African-American veterans on it, their rank, their service unit, and when they served. And then you will also walk around and you will see um, tablets that are developed that for each two columns, there were comments about brief history of what African-Americans did in that war. Like the first two will be the Revolutionary War, War of 1812, and it goes on. And then also you will see on these uh, pamphlets or columns, you will see a QR code that you can use your smartphone device to basically hit that QR code. And you'll get about 30 seconds of more information that you would read, maybe a little quick video or something. So this monument is not only to honor African-American vets, but it's also to educate the community and everybody on just what type of input and impact that African-Americans had in fighting for this country. I understand that the columns, too, are spaced such that they are sort of a timeline. Uh, The distance between each war corresponds to the amount of time between each war. So the space as you walk around, the space that you're walking in is the relative peacetime between wars. Yes. Wow. Talk about the pavers. These are individual dog tags. And I understand during the ceremony this weekend, it was pretty poignant. People were actually bending down and, and... Someone was even kissing one of the stones? You know, Dave, I, you know, it really hit me. After we uh, revealed it, you know, we pulled the the big tarp off of it. And families and people were walking around looking at trying to find their paper that they paid for. And I guess something hit people, you know, that when they actually seen their loved one, their father, uncle, brother, or sister, when they actually seen their name on concrete that's a permanent uh, memorial to their family member, a lot of the people reacted that I didn't expect myself. There was tears, there was joy. I mean, yeah, you know, a lot of veterans, especially World War II, and what's it, they never really talked about being in the service. I know my father never really talked about it at all. Mm-hmm. But to actually see a name of a family member, people were really emotionally affected by it. And I think that there's just, it hit me when I watched people's reaction. This is the first and only right now, maybe there are others that are planned, but the first African-American veterans monument memorial in the entire nation yeah why what we why it is yeah there are many cities that might have uh, statues of african-americans honor you in world war one or vietnam or whatever but there's no other monument in the country that we research that's a monument that acknowledges african-americans in all 12 conflicts that's the difference that this monument is just not for honoring Vietnam, African-Americans, or World War One wreck, or Koreans, or war veterans. This is people, who, this monument honors every African-American veteran from the Revolutionary War to now. Why here? One spot. 
why here? Did just someone here have the idea and other places didn't? Yeah, I guess uh, this idea came from the uh, women's civics group, Erie County Chapter of Lynx. Uh, in 2014, they basically uh, announced and they showed and they put on display at the Franklin Merriweather Library that for you for a year or so they were doing research and they developed these columns or paper strolls of all the names of all the African-American veterans who died. When they basically opened it up to the people to see it, they approached the semi-woman peoples trying to find a spot where they could basically store these. And at the same time, the neighbor park told them they didn't have any space. And then we realized that there's no monument in Buffalo to honor African-American veterans. You know, you go out to the naval park now, you'll see a monument honoring Hispanic soldiers, Polish soldiers, Irish soldiers, Afghanistan war veterans, but there was nothing down there. We went down to the naval park and got some land initiated. Then we met and met you know, for six years, and then we came up with, uh, we asked for proposals for designs, and, and we stayed locally, and we had six artists design, you know, submit designs, and this is the one the committee recommend, uh, decided on because it, it was the one that helped share our story the best. Warren, you and I have talked a little bit about this before, and I know for you, the stories are important. If I go up to the monument, use my device, and, and click on the QR code, what am I going to learn? What special story is out there that uh, perhaps resonates most for you? Oh, well, you, you've got to learn, like, the first person killed in the American Revolutionary War was the African-American. You're going to learn that in a World War, I mean, in the War of 1812, a lot of the war was fought in the Great Lakes. You're going to learn that a quarter of the Navy sailors in the Great Lakes Wars were African Americans. Uh, you're going to learn that in the World War One, the group called the Harlem Hellfighters, that were American soldiers trained in America to fight the Germans, but because of Amer uh, the American segregation policies, that black soldiers couldn't fight with white soldiers, they were assigned to the French government, but yet still fought for the same war. You're gonna learn that in spite of all the promises that African-Americans received, that if you uh, support us, like the Union soldiers in the Civil War or the American or George Washington soldiers in the Revolutionary War, that you would be free. But in spite of all these you know, promises, and the racism that whenever the call of duty or the call for soldiers came out from any war, African-Americans responded. So they, on one hand, they fought the, the, the enemy of America, but then when they came home, they had to fight the enemy of racism. So many of our soldiers had to fight two wars. Then you're going to hear about a woman's group called the Six Triple H in World War II, an all-black female battalion of mail handlers who were sent to England to clean up a warehouse that had millions of letters for American soldiers that were just stored in the warehouse, and these soldiers in Europe couldn't get them. But these group of women that 
they thought it would take about a year to to resolve the issues, that they cleaned up the old mail system in, in a few months. You're going to learn, of course, you learn about the Tuskegee Airmen, but you're going to learn about the Red Ball Express, a group of black truck drivers who just rode rode through the, the enemy territory in Europe to make sure the supplies got to the necessary soldiers. Uh, you're going to learn that in the Korean War, when it started, there was 100,000 African-Americans in the military. And when the Korean conflict truce hit, there was over 400,000. So you're going to read a lot of other history that just doesn't, you never heard about, but that blacks had a significant impact into the survival and the, and the well-being. You're going to hear about in the Civil War that the North was, was losing the war until Lincoln decided to authorize the Northern soldiers to, to draft and to put uh, African-Americans uh, to battle, which helped change the course of the war. So information like that that you might not have never read about, but these are true facts. I've heard of a little bit of it. Uh, the Harlem Hellfighters yeah. is one that I had never heard of before until I started chatting with you. Um, yeah. Not only did they have to fight with the French, but they um, trained in Spartanburg, North Carolina, and were an all-black unit in the Jim Crow South. Yeah. And, and that they received more medals from the French government than any other group of military people. But because of the segregation laws, here you are, you're American citizens, Dave. You're fighting the same enemy as the country, the Germans. But because of our segregation laws, you couldn't even fight with your fellow Americans. You had to fight with another foreign country. You know, and you try, now that you look at it, you're saying, was it really that bad? You know, the, the, the troops weren't segregated until 1946 when uh, President Truman issued an executive order. And this is kind of what you meant when you said not only did they have to fight overseas, but they came back and they ended up fighting racism here. Yes. Were you a veteran? Did you face some of that? Uh, when I came back from the war, the only uh, backlash I felt because I was a Vietnam veteran who fought in Vietnam is that, you know, Vietnam returnees, we were considered murderers because, you know, there's so much anti-public sentiments about the war in Vietnam. And a lot of that negative feeling was put on the, to the soldiers that when came back, we had nothing to do with nothing. And like, we didn't get a ticker tape parade when we came back from now. So a lot of us African-American soldiers with this monument, this, this is our version of our ticker tape parade. That's Warren Galloway, co-chair of Buffalo's African-American Veterans Monument. This has been Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks. Our daily show is on WBFO each morning at 10 and rebroadcast at 9 each evening. It's also available wherever you get your podcasts and on demand at WBFO.org. I'm Thomas O'Neill-White. Thanks for listening.